Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. On our last episode, Prosecutor Jesse Evans completed his questioning of Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent Richard Dial at a hearing where Judge Wallace Harrell would determine whether there was probable cause for the three men to face trial for felony murder. On this episode, Jason Sheffield, the lead attorney for Travis McMichael, the man who shot Ahmaud Arbery, begins his questioning of Agent Dial. That's coming up after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Travis McMichael's attorney, Jason Sheffield, begins his questioning of Agent Dial by seeking to understand the scope and nature of his investigation into the case. Special Agent Dial. Special Agent, I'm Jason Sheffield. Okay. We've had the occasion to talk on the phone a couple of times. Yes, sir. Assisting you in uh, getting your cell phones and Mr. McMichael's truck, is that correct? That is, sir. Yes, sir. Beyond that, we haven't really talked much about the case. That's correct, sir. Your testimony on direct has been very complete. You, you don't seem to have any issues remembering anything up to this point, so it seems like you've done a good job of reading the case file. Thank you, sir. Okay. And as the lead agent in the case, does that mean that all of the agents that are working the case with you report directly to you? Yes, sir. They, feel, they conduct the interviews or investigative act and then report back to me at the results or salient details in reference to it. And you've had an opportunity, even though some of those reports aren't written yet, but to speak to those officers and those agents prior to your testimony today. Yes, sir, that's correct. Okay, cool. You, you mentioned that your investigation is ongoing. What about your investigation is still ongoing? We are still conducting, um, I watched up a few interviews to conduct. We are still waiting on the results from various search warrants for um, records to come back to us. What kind of records? Judge, at this point, I'm going to object to relevance. It seems outside the scope of the issue, which is very narrow. What what is the probable cause for the basis of these warrants? Defense attorney Sheffield has stated in interviews with media outlets that, quote, the jury is going to feel the loss in this case. They're going to feel the tragedy in this case. And what happens when jurors feel that loss and that tragedy is they begin to wonder whether they should resolve the case in ways that are not consistent with what the facts and the law call them to do, end quote. In his questioning, it appears Sheffield is attempting to lay the groundwork for an argument that Agent Dialed entered the case with a bias focused on collecting facts that would hold the defendants criminally culpable. Going back to you coming onto the case, I think you were asked by the district attorney about how you got brought into the case. Yes, sir. It sounded like that you 
you testified that you called to see if you could lend some assistance to the investigation. Is that correct? I did not. No, sir. My, uh, I believe it was the director of my agency called. Okay, that'd be Mr. Nick I believe so, yes, sir, but I have not had a conversation with him about that. That's just my understanding. You know him to be the director. Oh, uh, yes, I meant the call. I meant the call. You're not sure if he made the call, but it was your agency that reached out to ask if they could get involved. Yes, sir. That's my understanding. Do you know why your agency asked to get involved? I do not. That'd be a question for him, sir. Okay. Or whether they were asked by anybody in particular to get involved. I do not know that personally. No. Have you heard? I have. I have my understanding that the governor has made a statement to that effect in the news media that he directed the director, but that was relayed to me secondhand. I did not see that directly. And so as you are stepping into the case, you said that you received information that you were going to get involved on May 5th. Is that correct? I got a call on the evening of May 5th by my SAC advising that the GBI had been requested in reference to the case. SAC special agent charge? Stace, yes, sir. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, special agent in charge. Um, I then received a call from my inspector on the morning of the 6th instructing me that I was the assigned case agent. Did you learn anything about the case from either of them? No, sir. Not, I mean. Or what the directive may be? Just to investigate the case was my understanding. At this moment, Jason Sheffield appears to shift his focus to exploring whether Agent Dial was aware of any political impetus to bring charges against the defendants. Were you aware of the shooting that had happened back on February 23rd prior to the 5th? Yes, sir, I was. Were you aware of what was happening with demonstrations and what was happening with sort of unrest in the community? Yes, sir, I was. Had you ever, any time ever spoken with Glenn County Police Department, anyone in Glenn County, about their investigation prior to your involvement? We had had discussion with them about the expected protests, but... Um, when was that conversation? I know there was... I believe earlier that week, that Monday, I believe, there was... If that or the week before... In May? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. There was um, information about a protest and the Glenn County Police Department interim chief of police, Jay Wiggins, contacted all local and state law enforcement in the area to have a meeting in reference to um, possible resources they could provide in reference to any protests that could occur. Aware of the, the letter that, um, that the DA had written to the sheriff uh, George Barnhill had written about his decision not to arrest. Objection relevance. Well, I don't see what that has anything to do with the case. Just ask another question. Okay. Um, may I ask if he's aware of the letter, Judge? The, the letter has information in and about the Glenn County investigation. I'd just like to know if he reviewed it. May I ask him about the letter? Did you, have you read the letter by Mr. George Barnhill, the district attorney, to the sheriff? Not to the, yes, sir. I read the letter that he wrote in reference to Tom Jump, I believe, which is not the chief of police, but I think he was captain of investigations. Okay. And you've read that letter? I have, yes, sir. So prior to engaging in your investigation, you had an understanding of the decision not to make the arrest. Object to relevance. The Waycross Judicial Circuit District Attorney to whom Sheffield refers is George Barnhill 
one of the two prosecutors who recused themselves from the case. Barnhill recused himself nearly two months after issuing a letter recommending that no arrests be made in the death of Ahmaud Arbery, and only after his personal connections to the defendants came to light. Barnhill's stated reasons for that recommendation were that, quote, the McMichaels were within their rights to chase a burglary suspect with solid firsthand probable cause, that it was Arbery who initiated the fight with Travis McMichael, and that Travis McMichael was, quote, allowed to use deadly force to protect himself, end quote, when Arbery grabbed his shotgun. Barnhill finished his letter by citing Georgia's citizen's arrest law as justifying the killing of Arbery. During our first two podcast episodes this season, we offered Prosecutor Jesse Evans and Agent Dials responses to these interpretations of Georgia law, including the following three assertions. First, in Georgia at the time of Mr. Arbery's killing, a citizen's arrest could be made only if the suspected offense is a felony and committed within the citizen's immediate knowledge, or there must be reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion for a felony crime if the offense is committed in the person's presence or within his immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. Second, rather than a citizen's arrest, the defendants were engaged in false imprisonment of Mr. Arbery, which happens when, in violation of the personal liberty of another, a person arrests, confines, or detains such person without legal authority. And third, it was Mr. Arbery who, after repeated attempts to flee the false imprisonment by the three white men, was engaging in an act of legal self-defense when he confronted Mr. McMichael. Judge Harrell overruled the objection by Prosecutor Evans, allowing Defense Attorney Sheffield to ask whether Agent Dial had read the DA's letter stating his reasons for not ordering the arrests of McMichaels and Bryan. Uh, not prior to my investigation. I believe I read that letter during my investigation. Okay. When you got involved in the morning of May 6th? I believe I read the letter on May 6th, yes, sir. Not the morning. I believe it was in the afternoon, but I read it. What I want you to focus on, if you don't mind, is you made a decision to take warrants for felony murder and aggravated assault against Travis McMichael. I did, yes, sir. afternoon of May 7th. So yes, within sir. a little greater than a 24-hour period. Yes. So I'm asking you then, what investigative acts did you do within that 32-hour period to make the decision that an arrest needed to be made? And I understand, and I can tell you some of the investigative acts, but I cannot give you a complete list. Okay. We had an agent interview Larry English to establish that there was no theft at the residence. Um, We also... Why was that important to you to establish there was no theft at the residence? Because... Part of the letter that you referenced to George Barnhill, he was alluding to the fact that it was a burglary in progress. Um, There's no evidence of a burglary taking place. Um, The fact that Mr. Aubrey had been there numerous times before, nothing had been taken. Um, The fact that they were reported as trespassing, not burglary. Um, Again, we had reviewed all Glenn County Police Department's case file. We then- um, At that time, you had reviewed the Glenn County case file within that 32 hour period? Yes, sir. Okay. That means all of their written reports. Yes, sir. The medical examiner's report. Yes, sir. Photographs taken. Yes, sir. You spoke with Larry English, who said to you, or one of your agents, "We, I have not, in fact, had anything stolen from me at any point in time. Is that correct? From that residence. 
from the two twenty six LLCs. They can establish they can establish that in that residence. Okay. And I think you said that therefore there was no burglary that happened in your mind. Is that correct? That's correct. Is it that is it that you believe that an item has to actually be stolen for the burglary to be committed? My understanding of the law is for burglary to commit, you have to enter a structure with the intention of committing a felony or a theft. Neither a fact could I establish in this investigation Mr. Aubrey had committed. Okay, but, but the burglary statute, to your knowledge, does not require an actual theft to be completed. It could True. be to enter simply True. with the intent to commit a theft. But at no time did it appear he was interrupted and he didn't steal anything. So I do not think you could establish as a point of law that his intention was to steal something if he had been in the residence multiple times and never taken something and then he left without taking anything. That was my reasoning. And in the video footage, you're saying you don't see anybody stealing anything, actually. I don't see Mr. Aubrey stealing anything. Like I said, there were children that took some scrap wood, but he did not consider that. The 911 calls from those instances, have you reviewed those 911 calls by Mr. English to see whether the statement he gave you about no theft matched what he told the police? I have reviewed the report from February 11th, which reviewed that, but the 911 call, I do not believe I have personally reviewed it, no, sir. To, to make a determination if he was reporting to police contemporaneously that he had, in fact, that thing stolen. Judge, I object to relevance. All of these questions are involving other acts, and we're here for probable cause as to the issuance of the arrest warrant for February 23rd of 2020. I don't believe we've had any questions about that today. May I respond to Yes. The, the issue that I believe we heard on direct testimony was that there's a history of problems in the neighborhood that neighbors were communicating about, that Travis McMichael and his father believed that, I think the testimony was, the guy was running past the house. And so I'm merely inquiring if he is aware of the statements that the homeowner who owns the residence that was being burglarized, if he has reviewed that enough to determine whether that person's statements actually do establish a burglary or not. I'll let you answer, let you answer the question. Thank you. So I guess my question was, have you, it sounds like your answer is no. The 911 calls, you have not reviewed. What Mr. English is telling the police contemporaneously on October 25th or November 18th, about whether he believes something was stolen. I have reviewed the February 11th report from the police where he clearly tells them that nothing has been taken, okay. that the person is doing no damage. On February 11th? On February 11th, yes, sir. I got you. And, and in the past, he, he notes that in the report. Okay. Um, so I have reviewed that police report, which is a statement that he made to a law enforcement officer prior to this shooting incident. I have also reviewed Greg McMichael's statement made to the Glynn County Police Department, where he says that he knew nothing was taken on February 11th. He didn't believe anything had been taken from the house in the past. He said it's possible, but he didn't believe so. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This last statement by Agent Dial reveals one of the most challenging pieces of evidence facing the defendants. Greg McMichael himself said to the Glynn County Police Department immediately after Mr. Arbery's killing that he knew nothing was taken from the property under construction on February 11 and that he didn't believe anything had been taken from the house in the past. Since Greg McMichael initiated the pursuit of Mr. Arbery, it would seem that his own statements would undermine an assertion that he sought to make a lawful citizen's arrest, since such an arrest requires that the person doing the arresting has reasonable and probable grounds to suspect that the person he seeks to detain has committed a felony. Sheffield next asks Agent Dial about the significance of Travis McMichael's Coast Guard training. I think you also testified on direct about Travis's background and being in the Coast Guard. What, what is it that you have done to look into Mr. McMichael's background? Uh, for Travis McMichael, we have uh, requested and obtained his Coast Guard training record and file, I believe. We, no, we've requested, I believe we've actually obtained it. Why did you do that? To understand what training he has received. During his interview with Glen County Police Department, he states that his position as a boarding officer, that he knew from 30 to 40 yards away that Ahmad Aubrey was not going to surrender, was going to keep coming. In that statement, I wanted to know what his training and experience was. Was that important that he told you that? Did you find that significant at all? I did. It helped confirm what I saw in the video, that when he's got the shotgun up, he's pointing it at him, and that helped confirm that to me. As we mentioned in episode one, the training in advanced weapons, active interdiction, and conflict resolution that Travis McMichael would have received as a member of the Coast Guard suggests that he would have been familiar with the safety precautions for a wide range of weapons, and that he should have known the basic rules of engagement in dealing with an unarmed civilian. And is it that training, did you learn about what he actually did, what his job function was in the Coast Guard? I think, I think you said boarding or... My understanding from his statements and from confirmation from the agent that had the file that he was a boarding boarding training, which is the person that goes on the boats to board them. Um, now, like I said, I have not reviewed his entire training file as of yet. To do what? Board other boats to do what? To take control of the boat. On our next episode, we are going to conclude our examination of Jason Sheffield's questioning of Agent Dial on behalf of his client, Travis McMichael. But first, we are going to continue our multi-part discussion about this hearing with Georgetown Law Professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice, Paul Butler. Understanding and accepting the context of what a probable cause hearing is, we got a lot of information about not just the facts of the case, but the legal arguments as they are shaping up. And among those legal arguments are that the defendants in this case engaged in false imprisonment of Mr. Arbery and that Mr. Arbery was engaged in self-defense when he confronted Travis McMichael with the shotgun. The 
defense is relying on a Georgia law that has since been repealed, which was a citizen's arrest law, as well as the argument of self-defense and the argument that they were reasonable in perceiving that Mr. Arbery was engaged in a felony and fleeing the scene of having committed a felony. Why don't you help us break down all of those positions, beginning with the case the prosecution appears to be making? The defendants are claiming self-defense. Normally, that would be a non-starter in a case where you have videotape of three men chasing somebody and then killing him. But Georgia law at the time allowed private citizens to make arrests in certain situations. So the defendants will claim that they have the right to pursue Mr. Arbery and that when Mr. Arbery physically resisted, they had the right to self-defense. There are some problems with that defense. But if it persuades just one juror, there's no conviction. And the defense will do what defense attorneys do all the time in self-defense cases, which is to put the victim on trial to make it sound like, in this case, Mr. Arbery brought about the circumstances that led to his death. The defense will rely on this old Georgia statute that has roots in slavery. It allows citizens to make arrests if a felony is committed in that person's presence or within his immediate knowledge. Under the Georgia law, there must be reasonable and probable grounds for suspicion. Under the Constitution, when anyone is arrested, there has to be probable cause, which is actually the same standard that the judge used in the preliminary hearing to determine whether the charges should be brought. This law, as you mentioned, Carrie, that authorized citizens to make arrests has since been repealed. It was repealed in response to the outcry over Mr. Arbery's death. It will be interesting to see how much, if any, of the context of the repeal, the defense is able to let the jury know about during the trial. The defense would love to be able to tell the jury that the law has been repealed because that will make it seem like the law authorized the defendant's conduct. And that's why it was repealed. Interesting. I was particularly struck by how thoughtful and clear Agent Dial was in recounting the events for the magistrate in the case. He seemed to be particularly attuned to the legal basis for the prosecution's case. And in assessing Mr. Arbery's intentions when he went into the home that was under construction on Satilla Drive, he seemed to be particularly attuned to the citizen's arrest law as well as self-defense law in Georgia. He seemed to be very well aware of the basis of charge of false imprisonment. What did you make of his presentation of the facts as he collected them and his awareness of those legal definitions as he took us through the facts. In a high-profile case, especially one that has the complicated procedural history that this case had, where lots of prosecutors didn't seem to want this case, in part because at least two of the defendants have worked in prosecutors' offices. So when the case is brought, Uh, You want your best team if you're working for the government. You want the best law enforcement officers, the best investigators, and the best trial lawyers. And what it means to be a 
excellent investigator in a case like this is to have the ability to communicate well, to communicate well with witnesses, to make them want to share with you everything they know about the case, and also to communicate well with judges during preliminary hearings and also with the jury during an actual trial. And I thought that Mr. Dial, in his remarks, did a fine job of both explaining what the government's case is, explaining uh, what their evidence is, and demonstrating uh, competency with complicated law. Citizens' arrests are, are quite rare, and I don't remember another high-profile case in which a citizen's arrest uh, was a major component of it. And so I thought that Mr. Dial, again, demonstrated his expertise with both the law and the facts in a way that obviously reassured the judge, which is why there was probable cause found. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Join us on our next episode where we will continue our examination of this probable cause hearing and what it means to the overall case against the defendants in the killing of Ahmad Arbery. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. This episode was written by Art Montrostelli. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracon. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmad Arbery.